Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Welcome to Medicine on Call. I'm waiting for my guest to call in, but before he does, or while we're waiting, I'd like to make a, you know, just a statement or comment about what's going on in Charlottesville and in the country. I mean, before the show, my producer and I were speaking about this coordinated effort to divide and conquer. You know, I personally think that we are all in this together. It doesn't matter whether you're black, white, green. Our country has got a lot of um, a lot of issues that need to be addressed, and uh, ultimately, we need to take a step back and look at where we are as opposed to where we were. This is not the uh, the '60s. The you know we're not going back in time. We are all living in a, in a position where if you have a skill and you have a God-given talent, you can pursue it and you can actually make have a quality life. This tearing down a statue does nothing to put food on your table, put your children through school, help you pay your mortgage or your taxes. And to fight this battle, this it's a it's a no-win situation. And potentially it has the position or the the ability to absolutely break our society in such a way that it's not recoverable. Can you imagine, Dave, if this gets out of control? What do you think the next step is going to be? It's not going to be sweetness and light. It's going to be more, you know, government control, maybe even martial law. And once that happens, civil rights are gone. We can have a conversation about uh, Obamacare, whatever we like. But if that comes on plane or to pass, it's done. Yeah, I agree, but I don't agree. It's like everything else. Uh, the old saying, the tail wagging the dog. Mm-hmm. You look at the numbers, and I don't, I don't, I can't quote numbers from Charlottesville. But the reality of it is, they are a minority. Both sides are minority. Neither one of them, in my opinion, speaks for the majority. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you hit it on the head. Um, we've changed. Um, my neighborhood is integrated, and I don't even like to say that. We have we have Americans living in my neighborhood, and I really don't think that any of my neighbors have marked anybody's houses <laughs> with a B or a, or a W, you know? Mm-hmm. We li- we're Americans. And, I, and I, I think if somebody, if we just step back and say, okay, I don't, I don't know how many people are in Black Lives Matter. I really don't give a damn. But you take that number, and it's got to be small. It's got to be very small in comparison. And I don't think that in any shape, form, or fashion, they speak for every black person in America. I just don't believe that. Nor does the KKK or any of the neo-Nazi crap 
Do they speak for, they damn sure don't speak for me. No, I don't think they speak for a majority of people. Look at the, the movie Detroit that was supposedly, it came out before this. And it was hyped to the nines. It was on as a commercial every 15 seconds, it seemed like. Only $7 million tickets or $7 million worth of tickets were, were, were um, bought to see this movie. Does that tell anybody anything? If the actual mood of the country was as dire and as divisive as these guys want us to believe, that movie should be number one in the box office. It's going to be out of, these, out of the theater before anybody even even takes a, you know, blinks. That's where the, the mood of the country is. We all just want to get the economy going, have safety, be able to pursue, save some money for retirement, pursue, again, what you're put on this earth to do, not to take, you know, your energy and effort to take statues down that mean nothing. And if you knew your history, those Confederate generals are Democrats, the Ku Klux Klan was started by Democrats. The people in the South who wanted segregation were Democrats. Learn your history before you let somebody lead you around by the nose to tell you how you should think and how you should feel. Nobody's going to do that for me or you or anybody who has critical thinking skill and the, uh, the ability and the, I don't know, the moxie to go and read. While the internet is still in there, still open, you better go and do some research on exactly where this is coming from. This is the same playbook as Ferguson, as Baltimore, where the government or the city mayor tells the police department to stand down. This is not the first time this has happened. There's nothing, freedom of speech really means freedom of speech. Everybody has the right to voice their opinion. If these people got a permit, to, to rally in that park. There is no reason that countergroups without permits were allowed to come up on them while there were police drones. And the police were, chief said, and I read this online on Saturday, we were told to stand down by the mayor and not to engage. But yet so, the, the police chief of Charlottesville came on and said, nobody told us to stand that's down. That's a lie, because it was said on the internet. So even the, the people who were there are saying that there were drones in the air, their police were, fights broke out. Before all this got completely out of control, fights broke out and the police did nothing but watch. They should have stepped in then. First of all, it shouldn't have gotten to that point because they should have kept these counter protesters a block or two away. Then I read that after they broke, you know, got out of control or before they got out of control, little fights were breaking out, but they, they, had people leave the park, but the way they herded them, the way they removed them from the park was to make them walk a gauntlet between the Antifa, Black Lives Matter, the counter-protesters. What do you think is going to happen when you take two hot, hot-headed groups, hate each other, ginned up for violence, and have them right next to each other? What do you think is going to happen? And Antifa, which is an anarchist organization, it's not a, it's not a freedom fighter group. That's what the media is trying to portray it as, which is laughable. Whatever credibility mainstream media had, I think is over when you start saying that an an anarchist group who throws human waste, uh, bricks, uses bats, uses, uses violence, which they've never put on TV. They never even identified these people on the news, but they've been on in Berkeley, everywhere. 
and you're going to call them a freedom fighter? This is... Wait a second. Okay, let me define freedom fighter. What does that mean? In, in my world, it means somebody who's fighting for peace and, and actually does not ferment violence. Do we not have freedom? Would they not be able to be there if they didn't have the freedom to, to march? That's a very good point. No. So what the hell are they fighting for? They're fighting to upend society. They're fighting just like the Obamacare situation where you have to create chaos in order to bring in a new version of something. They don't, this is not arbitrary, it's by design. And what they wanted and what they had set up were other demonstrations across the country. I read that they were had one in Seattle, New York, Dallas. This was supposed to be a coordinated effort. Imagine if all of that chaos had been multiplied in those cities. What do you think might have gone down? But, you know, you have to watch who stands to gain. It's not the individual, you know, on a on a picket line or whatever these guys are doing, creating, fermenting violence. They're not the people who stand to gain from this. We've seen already how this is operating. You bus in people. You pay people to be professional agitators. And I just listened on the way in the car that the people who started the violence disappeared when it got rolling. Are we all being played? This is what people need to start thinking about. What's the bigger picture? Who stands to gain? Follow the money and take your power back. Stop being led around by the emotional nose. As soon as you start thinking with the lower brain, it's eat, sleep, procreate, you know, just it's just no no critical thinking skills that go on. Then they win. There's no reason why anybody who's against the administration cannot go up and have a conversation and say, This is why we disagree. How can we work together? There's no reason not to be able to do that unless you don't want to do that, unless you're hell-bent on taking this administration down. To be replaced with what, I ask? If you do get what you want, what do you think is going to happen? It's not going to be peaceable. It's not going to be everybody getting along all of a sudden. It's not going to be kumbaya. It's going to be pretty bad. Do it the right way. If you lost, then you should, you know, meet, get together, create a, stra a strategy and a plan, and vote in the next election. Put up a candidate that's decent this time. <laughs> Do something to make them work within the system. This is what needs to happen, and turning over the game when you're losing is ridiculous. This is not child, you know, you're not a child anymore. This is real-world consequences that could not only destroy the country, maybe even go further than that if you really think about it. I don't want to, but there's some underlying force that's driving us towards hating each other, towards becoming all sorts of dependent on the government. And it's follow the money. All of the people in Congress now who, are, who voted against repeal and replace, who use the argument of, oh, I can't let Medicaid die in my state, you need to understand that Medicaid has become a money-making venture. Right, So they had trillions of dollars that got funneled into states, but they didn't use that money necessarily for Medicaid. They used it for other things. Infrastructure, you name it. Here in Georgia, there's a commercial, I don't know if you've seen it, where it says Medicaid and, and it's like a roulette wheel, and it goes banking, you know, other things. It's not just medical care.
They're not going to give up that gravy train. That's why Obamacare won't die, because the states are feeding from the trough, because the insurance companies are feeding from the trough. That's why. It's so sick. And it's not about patient care. And they could care less about the people who are working poor. They don't care about you people. Get over it and start making your own decisions. Start taking your power back. Yes. Everybody who listens to the show should, okay. I hope, have a clue about what you need to do to take, to, to make some choices about your health care and about your health. I tell patients every day, don't get sick. This is not a system that you want to be ill in because it's not really designed to help you. Not anymore. And it's just very sad. On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Good morning and welcome back to Medicine on Call. My guest is on the line now. This is Dr. Gregory Yang that's joining us today. Um, he's the direct, medical director of institutional research at the Yuma Regional Medical Center. He's a medical oncologist. And with all of the rates of cancer going up through the roof, I wanted to have a doctor on to speak about that, about what his experience is like on the front line, because it's so expensive. It's so daunting if somebody gets that kind of diagnosis. It's time that we get some uh, real-world experience and, and information. So, Dr. Yang, thank you so much for joining me. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your practice like? Uh, I, I work in, uh, for the Yuma Regional Cancer Center in uh, Yuma, Arizona. It's, the, uh, it's one of the hottest places in the country, you know. Uh, and it is also one of the poorest places in the country also. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, uh, it is pretty challenging to give cancer care, but, you know, we have those uh, times when, you know, you can only wait uh, so much and then you decide to, uh, to uh, get things activated, and it is a smaller town. And so we're, uh, uh, we have some pretty unique programs here that uh, we have instituted. We uh, have, uh, it's a, uh, it's a smaller size town and we are uh, 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 servicing uh, a large Hispanic community, uh, a large community of transient, uh, uh, what you call uh, winter visitor uh, here, as well as the general population that has been here for many, many generations. So, uh, I am a medical oncologist. Uh, I started out in Tucson, Arizona, and decided to come here about five years ago to start uh, uh, some of these projects that we have in uh, getting better care to patients. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, just as I said in the intro, it's so daunting to know that the cost, I mean, it's probably one of the most expensive um, healthcare treatment plans that you can have is if you've been diagnosed with cancer. You know, you're dealing with a population that doesn't have a lot of um, resources. How are they, what are you doing? What's novel that you're doing to help them afford it? Well, uh, we are, uh, at this time, we have several programs that we are trying to institute so that uh, we are doing everything we can to 
allow the patient to get as many uh, uh, preventive uh, programs going before uh, they uh, even get the cancer. Uh, and we just started that right now. The, uh, the hospital itself has several programs that they use to help the people who are the you know, citizens of the, uh, the, the country that uh, will, uh, that allows a lot of uh, benefits. But on our own itself, um, we had to do a lot of uh, uh, projects that really takes off bits and pieces of the uh, the, the expenses uh, uh, before they come to us. You know, I mean, is there a foundation, or is there a sliding scale? Is there um, price transparency? What exactly is it that you're doing to? help people afford the treatment? We, we, um, we work with a lot of the drug companies uh, so that uh, we can get a lot of the treatments for free. Mm. We also run a lot of clinical trials, which uh, allows us to get the medicine for free also, and with the added advantage of being able to uh, uh, create opportunities for being better, bringing better therapy to this area. That's great. You wonder why more places don't do that. Um, in terms of the clinical trials and, and, well, actually prevention, because just because someone has been, you know, or has a family history of cancer, does that actually necessarily mean that they are absolutely going to get it? What can people do, in your opinion, to, to lower their risk? Well, you know, the uh, what you're talking about is, uh, is, is is population health, and there's a lot of wonderful programs in the state that uh, started out in Phoenix that they're trying to uh, work uh, throughout the states, uh, throughout the, the Arizona. Um, but uh, in Yuma itself, we are incorporating a, a, a heavy program in trying to do uh, uh, three main things. First, we're working with a lot of genomics and, uh, again, in, in uh, predictive genomics and trying to find out what patients are at risk for. Second, we are participating as much as we can in developing the health developed diagnostic testing that will uh, bring the diagnosis of cancer as early as possible. For example, there's this one study that we are doing with a, a company in Phoenix where we take patients who are at a high risk for developing non-small cell lung cancer from smoking, mm -hmm. and um, if there is a, we do, we follow the, the uh, low-dose CT program and trying to f find a nodule uh, and if we find a nodule, there is now a new technology that will allow us to diagnose that nodule faster by taking sputum from, from that patient at the same time, and that sputum is put into a CAT scan that's only the size of a bread box. You're not doing a CAT scan of the body, you're doing a CAT scan of the cell itself. So what happens is a patient uh, that is normally um, Diagnose with lung cancer from smoking when it's bigger. Mm -hmm. We can we 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 hope we can catch these cells 
not only when it's smaller at right now we're working with ones that are six millimeters in diameter only uh, there will be there is a program now in also catching pre-cancer lung cancer cell that will allow us to uh, catch a cancer before it becomes a cancer and institute medication that will prevent the onset of the cancer itself. That program is running right now here in other parts of the country. That's awesome. Just imagine how many people you'll save with that without, you know, huge surgeries and radiation and all the things that, that go on to after the, the diagnosis is made. I can imagine the cost savings that would actually um, allow to happen too. That's amazing. That's uh, that's groundbreaking. It, yes, it is. It's a game changer. And what what happens with that specific test is that uh, with specific test is now being used for non-small cell lung cancer. We develop helping develop the test. The estimated savings uh, itself, after the numbers were run through. Uh, from uh, about 50,000 per life save using the low-dose CT program that's running throughout the country now, uh, down to about 8,000. So 50,000 to 8,000 is a lot. Oh, yeah. But e- yeah, but e- even more important, uh, that's you know trying to just diagnose a smaller primary, like a six millimeter primary. The even better is that we are now on the beginning of trying to uh, catch it before it becomes a cancer so uh, and this can be translated to any 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 other of the other diseases where you can get a liquid uh, so instead of sputum uh, as you can imagine you can get the liquid from uh, the kidney the bladder or the uh, the kidney the bladder uh, or the uh, prostate uh, to catch the uh, prostate cancer easier as well as you know getting uh, saliva for uh, head and neck and stomach uh, and pancreatic cancer that's amazing uh, yeah so we're participating in that and so when people are saying that you know we are going to do everything that we can to, for to, to prevent the diseases we, we follow the large programs that they have and, you know, decreasing the amount of smoking, eating the proper foods, but at the same time, we're, we're also beginning the process of saying, you know, we, we need more preventive drugs that are cheap, safe, and are going to be taken for a long time. We're encouraging as much of our research to include that in all the research we, we're doing uh, in, concurrently with cancer care or the patients who are actively getting cancer. For example, uh, we are studying populations, and there are people all, all over the country who are studying populations of persons who do not get lung cancer, even though they're heavy-duty smokers. Mm-hmm. You have a 92-year-old who is a two-pack-per-day smoker, and he doesn't develop lung cancer. There are people in Seattle that want his blood and try to find out why he did not develop cancer when he should have with all that smoking. We get enough of that database, we're going to do uh, reverse uh, evaluations here so that instead of finding out what went wrong with the patient, we're going to try to contribute to the database 
So we're going to find out what we did, what the, what happened that was right with the patient that prevented the actual disease, and try to find that genomically, save that information, and then and try to recopy it in the preventive uh, mode. So we're uh, the people who survived the cancer; they're doing well, as well as those people who never developed develop the cancer, even though they put themselves in a position to uh, they put themselves in a position to cause the cancer. Uh, there's something special about them. Mm-hmm. And if you get that genomic database, uh, possibly manipulation can be done eventually that will copy that. Uh, so that's a very, very exciting field. Uh, actually, the, the big sites are in, uh, are in Seattle. And uh, once we get our program going, uh, we'll be able to do a lot of that. Well, I have a devil's advocate type of question because I'm concerned with with the the gene therapy uh, CRISPR technology where you can edit genes and insert genes do you foresee that being a treatment if you find the thing that made that 92 year old resistant some sort of gene is that a, a therapy that you think would would come down the line I, I think uh, that may be a possibility that uh, that will be part one of the solutions but then you may not have to do that either. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, as you know, you, you're hearing a lot about immunotherapy mm-hmm. being uh, being uh, the the answer now for uh, a lot of the cancers. It very very big uh, hit has really uh, changed the uh, the uh, response rate tremendously. Well, uh, there are people in, in Europe who are looking at the target, which are called uh, the checkpoint, the PDL1 uh, target sites on the, on the cancer cell, where the immune system is supposed to work on. And a lot, of, a lot of people don't realize that olive oil also goes after those uh, target sites. And so if you are able to find out what is going to cause that, and try to find out it may be something as simple as a change in diet specific for that patient mm-hmm. who has it higher, you know, who can protect themselves. It, it doesn't have to be a genetic change. It can be a definite diet change, but it has to be a specific diet to see what, what you can find out. You know, the data, is, it is also that we're uh, that is going to be involved is looking at the microbiome. You know the uh, the the bugs, the microbes that are living on a patient's body uh, in the uh, gastrointestinal tract is going to be a big determinant of what illnesses that we're going to have. And it's a very exciting field that we can use, and and may not necessarily mean uh, genetic uh, genetic uh, modification. Uh, uh, resources or, you know, genetic modifications like CRISPR, we may not be required to do that. So it just has to be the right food for the right patient. On that note, Greg, let's take a break um, and come back and pick that up. You're listening to Medicine on Call. health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. 
And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out of pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Yang, the Medical Director of Institutional Research at the Yuma Regional Medical Center. And before the break, Dr. Yang, we were talking about the, the gut, basically. I think this is one of the most important parts of our, of our body. It has so many things that it affects. And you talked about the, the microbiome and bad yeast, bad bacteria, all those things, I assume, making it more likely that we're, we're pre, you know, I guess, preferentially um, growing things that are toxic and, and turn our system towards cancer. Is that a way that you think about it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, you are uh, you will have genetic factors that predispose uh, predisposes you to that, and uh, but the translation of that effect, what you know, people are saying, the effect of the environment mm-hmm. uh, or uh, the food that we eat uh, is is now being felt to be manifested by the way the the, uh, the microbes. Or, or that are occupying uh, our uh, our bodies and, and gut, you know. This, uh, you know, for example, you know the the new drugs. Uh, there's there's a report in last uh, last big uh, uh, oncology meeting in Chicago that uh, the new powerful immunotherapy. There's a new study that shows that it can be inactivated by something as simple as antibiotics. You know, twenty, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars worth of drug. You give antibiotics a month ahead of time. Mm-hmm. It stops the immune system from going after the cancer that you just gave the patient. Wow! It's uh, it's amazing. So if you, you know, antibiotics can affect the new immunotherapies that we're now using for the cancer, and of course that has to be substantiated in bigger studies. Just imagine what else is happening for decades. That allows the manipulation of uh, of of cells uh, directed by specific genetic predisposition um, that allows a disease to come. You know, uh, a lot of the the Hispanic, uh, uh research uh, folks are uh, excuse me, the gastrointestinal, and but now it is a pretty good prevalent in this area. Is that we are now having younger people. Uh, getting colon cancer. Uh, I spoke to some oncologists from Mexico City, and they are seeing up to 25% of their patients are now under four years old who are uh, developing colon cancer, and they feel there's definitely something happening to the to the microbiome that's allowing this to happen. Uh, so nobody thinks that anybody has 
at, at, at any exposure that will cause a, a primary damage uh, uh, DNA and uh, genomics mm-hmm. from the very beginning. Something happened in between the you know, time the patient was born and they, as they got older. You know, so it's it's a it's a very very powerful component of the treatment that uh, they have to develop in order to have true control of the disease. So uh, we're looking forward to doing a lot more work in that area. They have to take that into consideration uh, in uh, determining the more effective treatment for the future. Uh, and seeing what what is happening to the patient's uh, viruses and bacteria. Well, is there any population studies being done on people in develop, developing countries who don't get vaccinated as often, who the children live in areas where they're playing in dirt, they're getting exposed to natural pathogens and their their immune system is fighting it, so they're pretty tough. I mean, we do give our, our, our children here antibiotics at the drop of a dime. We just seem to really just knock them out with antibiotics and various things that mess with the immune system in their developmental stage. Even pregnant women, for example, are getting vaccinated. Is is there any population study that compares the cancer rate, let's say, like you just said, the uh, colon cancer rate in young people in a developed country versus a developing country? Is that being done? I, I'm not sure specifically, and I cannot cite one, but I am sure there's something running now that they're working through that. Um, you know, even something simpler uh, is the single-payer system in Canada because a, a very, very effective system, or are we just working with tougher people who, work, who live in a very, very cold environment that they are able to... Uh, take advantage of less medical care that we we are dependent on. You know, are the Canadians tougher than we are? Uh, and so, something that like that should, should be looked at. It would be would be very very interesting and eventually contributory to exactly what you're taking. Uh, as far as uh, that conjecture is definitely there, that we are uh, the the people who are. Uh, who, who don't run and get antibiotics right away, uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, they are definitely strong. They have a stronger immune system. Mm-hmm. But again, you have to know what the, what the immune system is, if it really is stronger or if something else got turned off the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we didn't have any ways of looking at this before, but we do now. So you, you can determine which patients will have, uh, should not get as much uh, medication possibly. That's one of the solutions, mm-hmm. and other people should get more. It'll be individualized. And I don't know if you can address this, but the, talking about gut health again, you know, all of these ex- explosion of food allergies with gluten sensitivities, with the, I've read the glyphosate, which is the, um, the same uh, chemical as Roundup, when you eat that or have foods that have that in it, it totally blunts the or affects the GI tract. So you can't absorb as well as you're supposed to. You've got an inflammatory response that goes wild. Do you think that's also one of the reasons that we're seeing an uptake, or uptick, I should say, in cancer? Well, it, it, the, the thing is, 
the thing about cancer, as we are looking at now, we're not in eventually again, again with the, with the use of you know good uh, computer supercomputer systems to run the numbers, is that it's not going to be one single item that is going to make a di- going to make a difference. It's going to be many things, you know, uh, put together, probably 10, 15 data sets, microbiome, the patient's, uh, you know, the, the, the patient's uh, germline genomics, what the somatic genomics are in uh, the cancer itself that eventually comes up. There's a lot, a lot of things that are uh, involved that are going to do that, and there, uh, you know, I'm not trying to advocate for anything pro this, pro that. Mm-hmm. We have to be open mm-hmm. to find out what's really happening that will be applicable for all people. Uh, so there may be some people who will have that problem, and some people who won't. So, well, that, you know, I I totally I agree with you. I don't think there's a one size fits all for anything. But I think we could probably agree on if you put a lot of chemicals in your system, they're not. It's not a good thing. I mean, because it it can cause things in people that otherwise wouldn't manifest, right? So, I'd say we clean our diet out would be number one. I mean, when you talk to patients about changing their eating habits, what do you counsel them? Do you counsel them to stay off of sugar? What do you tell them? Yeah, we, uh, you know, we. we Keep with the adage that you know you have to uh, minimize uh, excesses in anything, and keep that as a general, uh, and keep that as a general uh, uh, habit. Um, we, do, we do tell them to take you know, less sugars, but um, our our thing that we are doing is we're gathering data to make sure that what we are telling people will be applicable for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think you know is the big thing that is happening, rather than rather than general rules. For now, the general rules will work, but in the future, it's going to change. So it will be, we feel, genomically based, and a lot of database that will be able to help a patient so that they are not so confused. Uh, so there are too many people who are doing the right thing, but they get sick anyway, and so. So we give follow the general guidelines, but in the future it will be more tailorable in the prevention mode. Well, in, that's in the future, but right now, what are the what are three things that you three tenants or three things that you would could tell somebody that they could at least begin the process of lowering their risk? Well, well, it depends on, on uh, well. Again, uh, we do uh, uh, we do recommend uh, you know eating a, a balanced diet, uh, watching those sugars very carefully, mm-hmm. and probably the most is the the uh, the exercise. Uh, uh, exercise is probably the most uh, uh, equally important uh, uh, facet in working with inflammation, which a lot of people feel are contributing to the cancer. The wrong kind of inflammation is contributing to cancer. Can you explain that? Because that's shorthand for you and I, but is there, what's a good inflammation and what's a bad inflammation in your opinion? Yeah, uh, 
a bad inflammation is when a specific site in your body, like the colon, gets too much of the immune system working on it. There has to be a repair. There is a damage that is caused by the inflammation, and there has to be a repair, and that gives an opportunity for a bad cell that wants to reproduce excessively to come out and be able to start growing, and that will be the beginning of cancer. And so a, a lot of folks are saying that we have to find the right targets for uh, to be addressed by you know uh, diet mm-hmm. that will uh, manipulate that to minimize that inflammation so that uh, bad cells won't start coming out. In a second or a few minutes ago, you mentioned olive oil as a really good uh, food that could depress or or keep cancer from coming online. Is that something that everybody should consider eating or adding to their diet? That seems pretty innocuous and pretty powerful, technically. Well, a lot of people feel that that is the basis of the Mediterranean diet, mm-hmm. is that it's not the whole diet itself, because, you know, the French people follow the Mediterranean diet, and a lot of their food uh, is not exactly too healthy, but they don't have a high coronary artery rate, you know, uh, surprisingly compared to the other European uh, countries, and, and cancer rate isn't that much higher. But they do use a lot of olive oil, so a lot of people think that, that uh, you know, olive oil is a very good product uh, in concert with a reasonable amount of other foods. So, again, uh, it's, 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 we're just at the beginning, and again, I, I, I don't want to give hearsay, and uh, the I don't want to give hearsay uh, because we're trying to get down to the science of individualizing a lot of these things that we, that we could not do before. Well, on that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Gregory Yang, a medical oncologist who's on the front line of of the new, I think, a new frontier on cancer treatment, where it's individualized, where it doesn't mean the standard treatment of chemo radiation. It's about real prevention, and about, and it looks like to me, non-caustic, non-toxic treatments. I mean, the side effects of what you're describing to treat. In the, ma- in the methods you, you um, say that you want to treat people, seems really very easy for the patient compared to what they're doing now. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. The, uh, the treatment uh, has to be uh, expected to be given on a long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has to be much less uh, toxic. And the... Uh, and it has to be inexpensive, of course, uh, because it's going to uh, uh, it's going to be given for a long time, and uh, they cannot, 
you know, they, it, it, this can be done, we believe, so that if people are looking for treatments, whether it's a genetically modified uh, 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 technology versus the big changes in the, the, the diet specific for that patient, mm-hmm. uh, it, we have to find a way of looking at it so that we can identify what is specifically good for that patient and, you know, and uh, really uh, save things in in the long run, you know. You know, before before the break, you mentioned we talked about bad inflammation, and I asked if there was a good inflammation, and we never got to that point. Is there a good inflammation? Uh, yeah, the, the the good inflammation. So, so I'm I'm working working backwards here. So. The new treatments that that we are now you're now hearing about the immunotherapy, okay, that is a very very powerful tool that we are using now. That we give strong medications to to allow the good immune system to go after the cancer cell, okay. Mm-hmm. So the question is, why did that? immune system not work that required our special heavy-duty medicine to turn it on against the cancer. So the idea is you try to find out what that is specifically that failed and did not protect the patient and promote that and allow it to do its job in recognizing cancer when it is still younger or thinking about being formed and get that turned on. That's that's an idea. That's the what I the way I look at it. You know, there's something wrong with your immune system that you allowed the cancer to come. Now we have to give big medicines that allow it uh, to to do its job on a temporary basis. Why can't you? Why couldn't it have been done oh, for the last ten to fifteen years by giving you a medicine that also promotes that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the trick is now in being able to find the specific immune system uh, component that we that is, we have to concentrate on. Well, you know what you're doing is so exciting. I know that there are people listening to the show all over the country who, if they have been diagnosed, would you know love the opportunity to be in a trial or find a center that's in there close to them that they could actually access. One, do the people who enter your system have to be from Arizona to do it, or can they come from a different state? Well, they can definitely come from a different state, but uh, we would, we are, we are building our base right now mm-hmm. you know it's uh, the, the information is coming in so rapidly you know it is coming in so rapidly it's like you know it's like you know going to a grocery store and you have those weekly ads that you get in your mail once a week mm-hmm. you imagine getting 10 years worth of the weekly ad sale coming to your front door uh, every week and you're supposed to uh, uh, work it out. Uh, we are going to be building consortiums with the state as well as partners in other states starting in the Southwest. And uh, we will be able to build, uh, we will be able to build uh, a, a, uh, a network in being able to do this across the country. 
And would it also, like in Arizona, be able to to take in and help people who don't have um, economic means? We're absolutely that. That is our. That is definitely our aim because we feel that that subset of the of the patient population uh, is it is well. Let's just let's just put it this way: If we are able to, this is the better way of putting it. If we are able to do our job properly in the prevention, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, it's going to take a little bit of time. You know, the time is ten to fifteen years. Is that it will be, the the cost and the driver to do uh, treatments that are expensive after the cancer already gets there uh, are going to be reduced significantly. We hope so that there is going to be more money for everybody else in, in trying to use if this is a, you know just so uh, so instead of. Uh, having 15 drug companies trying to develop the next uh, immunotherapy, mm-hmm. I said, why don't you take some of your knowledge and then work with some, uh, work with the primary uh, prevention people and saying, okay, now this is the stuff that's working for this family. Uh, do we have a target in the other family members that we can use to protect them if it looks like they're going to be predisposed to the disease? So, uh, yeah, so it's a very, very uh, uh, possible that we will have uh, more money for everybody else once the prevention gets going, because we are directing our work here to, uh, a lot towards that, uh, specifically the Hispanic population, uh, in uh, preventing disease so that the overall cost of medicine will be less. You know? Is there any pushback in your city from other medical centers that you know, let's face it, this is a business. Healthcare has now become a business, and it's about profit. And you are running counter to that. You're, you're offering a treatment that is m- more cost-effective, fixes the problem. You know, we know the, the typical mindset of, of a physician who's out there to help their patient. Are you getting any pushback or any negativity from, you know, uh, you know com- I guess competitors? Well, I haven't seen it lately, but you are probably right that there will be. But again, we, we're still at a very novel uh, position and a very early stage that we're not seeing any opposition. But how can, how can anybody oppose this, including the people who are uh, supposed to be making uh, the treatments that are in, in opposition to what I am doing? So you, you talk to an executive for a big drug company, and I said, you know, I'm talking of protecting your kids, your grandkids, and your family in the future. So if you really think that your drugs are going to be able to take care of everything, you're, short, you're shorting your own family, you know? Yeah. I when I when I whenever I make a presentation I always show a picture of my granddaughter to remind people that this is what I'm working for. I think everybody should be doing that. You make a big uh, presentation for a drug company, you make a big presentation for a diagnostic. Keep in mind what you're trying to do this for. Is that it you know, for me it may be too late, I'm sixty I'm in my sixties 
and I've done all, I may have done all the wrong things all my life, but at least I am going, I am, what I'm doing now, I think will help future generations because it will hit everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all the politics that have been going on with Joe Biden, what is the most forefront in his mind now? It's his, his son. Mm-hmm. He probably wished somewhere in there, he said, you know, I wish I, I could have. He's probably saying it every day, and he's doing it now with his moonshot program, is that I wish I could have done more. You know, where else could I have done more? And everybody should say that. Uh, I, I think it's, a, it's more than just a change in, in trying to help people. It's a change of attitude of, of people towards uh, themselves. Is that stop thinking in terms of just yourself and try to start thinking about your own, own family. You know, well, one, one of the things that has to happen is that the doctors have to change. We have to start getting very, very, uh, very, very smart people who are going to be educated heavily in genetics, data analytics, get into the primary care field. They have to do that. And then, then you can, they can start spotting patients who they think, you know, they may have something that uh, we can deal with now so mm-hmm. that it doesn't become a bigger problem later on. That paradigm shift and just the way uh, the residents and, uh, are being trained and what they are going to be asked to do is going to change. Stop referring patients because we're asking you to develop the systems for the future so that the diseases will have a minimal impact. So the people who worked out the genomics uh, from 20 years ago in, uh, in uh, the, uh, the, from the whole, the whole genome project, they, uh, they know that this is, this is going to come uh, and they've just been waiting for the prices of these testing to come to a very reasonable uh, level. In 2003, when they sequenced the, all the genes in one patient, it cost over $110 million. We now have it down to 470 or less, you know, le- less than the, the, the uh, price of a cell phone. That, that is all they were waiting for at this uh, moment has come that... Greg, I'm going to have to stop you. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. You're on a roll. I have to have you back so we can explore what you just said about primary care and using a different paradigm. And I thank you so much for joining me, and thank you for listening to Medicine on Call, and I definitely want to have you back. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.